good evening and welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Ah, we meet again. Well, allow me to say that it's a pleasure having you here with us this evening. And per usual, I have a collection of listener-submitted stories, sure to leave you petrified. And for those that don't know me or aren't familiar with the show, I don't dick around. At Monsters Among Us, we get right into the action. And tonight, that action begins in the Pacific Northwest. Oregon, to be specific. Clint, your time begins now. Hey, Derek, this is Clint. Uh, I'm calling from Oregon. I'm calling about a experience that was not my own experience. It was my mother's experience. And, well, I guess I'll just cut right to the story. Basically, at my parents' house, of which I no longer live, ever since my parents had moved up there, there had been a little grave site that was to the right of the gravel driveway, the long, steep gravel driveway from the bottom of the gravel driveway that meets up to the highway up to the top where my parents live. And on that grave was the name of Carrie Dundon, I believe, and the age uh, at the time of death and the, the year that she was born and the year that she had passed away. I don't remember the specific year or the specific age, but I am currently in the process of obtaining pictures that my mom had taken of this grave back in the day when they had cleared the bushes around the grave. And speaking of those bushes, the grave is completely obscured now by all sorts of flora that has grown specifically on the grave site and not anywhere else uh, around our property or at least anywhere else around the immediate side of the grave. Now, that in itself is not spooky in nature, or it could be, I guess, but my mother has said multiple times that she has heard a little girl laughing very late at night. She always stays up late till 12, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, and has, as I said, claimed multiple times that she has heard little girls laughing, or a little girl laughing. I personally have never experienced anything, but I can tell you that even driving past that grave marker or that grave at night gives me the chills, and I have the most strong instinct to not look to my right as I pass it. Out of fear of seeing her standing there, the imagination just starts to go wild. I did have to, about six months of my life, when I was living at my parents' house, I owned a car that was incapable of driving up that driveway because of its low clearance. And so I had to park at the bottom of my neighbor's house and walk up every night, and I would get off work late around 10 to 12 at night. And I would have to park at the bottom and walk up with nothing but a phone flashlight. And some nights I just had such a strong feeling of dread and fear that I was unable to walk up the driveway and I ended up just sleeping in my car for the night or sometimes I would even have my I would even call my parents and have them come pick me up at the bottom of the driveway because I just did not feel like driving or walking up there I would have my phone flashlight on and I would have music blaring just to try and I don't know get my mind off of the thought of poor Harry and maybe 
scare her away. I don't, that sounds ridiculous, but it, it helped me at the moment. Anyways, uh, I appreciate your time, and I love the podcast. I've been watching or listening, excuse me, for about a year now, and I've listened to, I think, pretty much every episode. Anyway, I appreciate your time, and have a good night. Bye. Thank you, sir. We've all been there. We each have our own creepy spot in the world that you likely avoid whenever possible. For me, it was my grandparents' house. The back part of the house. Oddly enough, both upstairs and downstairs of that section creeped me out. I should also point out that that section of the house was actually built from wood taken from a candy shop that was dismantled. Well, from the den area in the basement where my grandfather hung out, you had to basically pass through this creepy area where they did laundry and my grandfather had some tools. You had to pass back through that way to get upstairs. And I remember one time being creeped out. So I crawled out a window and walked around the house. Now, mind you, this was probably 10 p.m., pitch black outside. I did all that just to avoid it. Now my dad gave me a hard time when he found out about that. He said, you went outside because of an imaginary monster when there's all sorts of things outside that could actually hurt you. Now keep in mind, it was pitch black dark outside. And I was maybe all of eight years old. So what he said was mostly true. And I tell that story for you, Clint. Passing Carrie's grave may get your imagination going, but sleeping in your car on the street is probably much more dangerous. But I get it. My brothers and I found a grave behind our house when we were younger. We snuck onto our neighbor's land for a change of view. There we found a mound of white rocks. Soon we discovered writing on the stones then put two and two together to realize they were broken marble headstones. Well, we later learned from that same neighbor that there was a husband and wife buried there from some 100 plus years ago. The only name that I can recall at this date is the name Sarah, which I know is not all that helpful. Well, that discovery kept me up at night as a child. Because guess whose ground-level window face the very direction of those graves. That's right. It was mine. And I just knew one night Sarah's rotting skeleton would come tapping on the glass. Well, to my good fortune, it never ended up happening. And as I grew older, I realized how long the bodies had been there. You know, if something was going to happen with them, I probably already would have by now. At least, that was my ten-year-old logic. But what if that wasn't the case? What if the bodies buried weren't decades or even years old? John Loddenslayer and his dog Benji live across the alley from where a pet burial in a backyard took a terrifying turn. Oh, it's... It's crazy. Loudenslayer arrived at his home just as the sheriff's department was investigating the discovery of human remains. I walk out the back gate here and they're exhuming a body across the alley from me. A human body was found behind this home 
by pet owners as they tried laying their family pet to rest. The Sheriff's Department is waiting for the coroner's report to identify the remains, then determine how the person died and whether a murderer is on the loose. The body was likely buried recently. It's not something that has been buried there for 10, 15, 20 years. So uh, it probably is closer to a matter of months rather than years. Now that clip comes courtesy of CBS News 13 out of Sacramento. And could you imagine? It's one thing knowing that they're there, knowing someone's buried down there. But it's another to discover a grave you didn't know existed. Now, the only thing I can think of that might be worse than that is if the grave was missing altogether. It was here, deep in these woods, a burial site from the 1800s where someone decided to single out one woman and dig deep into her grave. Everything's gone. There's no bones. Everything has been taken. The marker near her gravesite shows Mary Chapman died in 1838. And for nearly 200 years, her body lie here in this big beaver field, now woods. I walked my dog up in this area, and I noticed two weeks ago that somebody had dug a grave up. So Hogel and her son called police. I dug plenty of hole, and this is real tough ground. Dylan Eminger knew this grave was chosen, deliberately and strategically dug into. The state police agreed and tell me they are now investigating the discovery. In a best case scenario, they were trying to, you know, get a gold tooth or something like that. What's the worst case scenario? You know, it's, it's creepy. Creepy and disturbing, in particular with Halloween approaching. Who steals a body from 1838? If you know anything about Mary Chapman, her history, or why someone may have dug her grave, or who that person may be, you're asked to call the state police here in Beaver County. Now that tragic and unsettling act was committed in Big Beaver, Pennsylvania, and comes courtesy of WTAE, ABC News 4, out of Pittsburgh. And without getting gruesome, I seriously doubt there was much of a skeleton left to steal after some 200 years. So I guess the moral of the story here, Clint, is that things could always be worse. Thanks again for sharing your experience. Now, if you have a call that you think is perfect for the program, give our toll-free hotline a call at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Now, let's make our way to the land where the football fields are blue and the potatoes are world-famous. Please welcome Chad from Idaho to the program. How's it going, Derek? Hope you're doing well. Enjoyed the podcast since I found it, I don't know, a year or so ago. So listening to the first few episodes, I realized I was going to have to call in eventually. Submit my story. So I guess that's what this is. When I was growing up, I'd, I guess you could say I was a skeptic. Kind of still am. See it to believe it type of person. Um, when I was in college, uh, it was my last semester in school. October 2010. I uh, attended a college called Salisbury University, located on the Delmarva Peninsula, which is in between the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean, pretty much middle of the East Coast. Just for context, there's a few military, naval stations or air stations in that area. I mean, obviously, Annapolis is there, the Academy, Patuxent is another naval air base on the southern end of the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. Then you also have the Norfolk 
you know, all the different facilities down there, whether it's Navy or Air Force, Marines, whatever it is down in that part of the country. Um, and then there's also the Wallops Flight Center, which is a NASA facility. I think they do a lot of like satellite launching and stuff like that out of there. And that's on the eastern shore of Virginia. So where this took place was on Assateague Island. It's a national seashore and state park, kind of right on the border of Maryland and Virginia on the, the Atlantic Ocean. And I had a permit on my truck at the time where we could take it out and drive it on the sand. So we would do that a lot. When it wasn't summertime, I would still go out and go fishing or whatever, hang out, look at the stars in the evening if there wasn't anything else going on. So that was one of these nights we went out there. Like I said, this was October in 2010. And we had a couple of fishing rods out and we were kind of just sitting around, hanging out in the back of the truck, looking at the stars. And these two orange lights appeared. And I could tell they were higher than what would be on the surface of the water. And growing up in that area with the airports in D.C. and Baltimore and just all the air traffic around, you get familiar with what a typical light configuration is on a helicopter or airplanes and stuff like that. And these lights were a bright orange, like the color of a flame. And they, they really just came out of nowhere and they were sitting there just slightly above the horizon. I couldn't really tell how far out they were. So given a size would be just a guess, not having any real judging on the distance. And it went from two to three to four to six. These other balls of light would turn on and they would move around sometimes in like a circular pattern and it seemed like three would be together doing one thing and the other three would kind of repeat it or respond to it and they would move back and forth and as this played out I was sitting there with the girl I was dating at the time and I don't remember having a conversation about it I mean I know we were both kind of in awe of what was happening and almost as quickly as they appeared, they went out one by one till they were all gone. They didn't really move really fast over a great distance, but there was really abrupt movement. And they would stop and hover, I guess, for lack of a better term. But then they would zip a decent ways, again, trying to judge distance and stuff without knowing how far away they were. Just a guess, but it was definitely something that wasn't a, an aircraft that I have ever seen before since. Didn't do a whole lot of research at that time. Didn't know really what to think about it, honestly. And in the last few years with things being released by Department of Defense and just how more common, I guess, these reports are, maybe with the, the number of people with cameras in their pockets and stuff now, I've come across a few other sightings and even heard some on your show that are pretty similar to what I saw. And even looking into the ones there on the East Coast, it seems like down along North Carolina, there's some that are called the Cape Lights. There's a video I found, and that's probably the closest thing that I've seen to what we saw there on Assateague Island that night. So, pretty interesting. Still somewhat of a skeptic, but there's definitely more going on than, than we're aware of. So, I'll leave it at that. Thanks for the show. Thanks, Chad. Those long-distance sightings can be quite frustrating. Like he said, it's very hard to judge distance. But despite all that, I can't shake the feeling that Chad might be describing aerial flares. I know, I know. That's always the excuse. But the description of the color, shape, and the fact that they appeared one by one 
are all telltale signs of military flares dropped from aircraft. And the fact that it took place out over open ocean also helps support that theory. But I will admit, I am hung up on one detail. Flares don't typically move, other than being gently lowered to the ground by their individual parachutes. So if a flare can't move that way, what else could? Well, I suppose that's why they call it an unidentified flying object. Thanks again, Chad, for calling in. Oh, by the way, I tried to find the Cape Lights from North Carolina to share with everyone in the show notes, but I had no luck in finding info on the subject. So, Chad, if you have something to share, please send it my way and I'll be sure to post it. So, you guys have any interest in hearing a really weird one? Michael, go ahead and freak them right on out. Hello, this is Michael again from McAllen, Texas. This story is uh, about uh, little people uh, and my encounter with one. So uh, it was about 11 o'clock at night, and I had been working at a, at a shoe store, the Payless shoe store near my house. And uh, at the time, I didn't have a vehicle. Gosh, the year's about it, probably 1999 or something. And my friend that was a long day at work, and uh, he, he took me home. And we we're sitting there talking. And he's looking towards me, and, and uh, I'm looking towards him. And I had already noticed a little kitten in the driveway. And it was maybe about, I don't know, like three feet uh, from the passenger door. And uh, he's like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, it's a cat. It's a kitten. He's like, yeah, but what is it playing with? So I turned over, looked through the window, and sure enough, the kitten is sitting on his haunches, and he's got like, he's doing that in the hand thing, like he's playing with the arm or something. And I see something under his paw I mean this is a kitten so it's small and uh, I like roll down the window so I go down the window and then whatever this thing was the little person and I'm talking about like action figure size turns around and looks at his boat like he, he turns to look over its shoulder and then casually starts walking away and the cat just I don't even remember at that point I know the cat was in the picture somewhere but I was just focusing on this thing walking away and it walks towards the hurricane fan through the holes and puts one leg inside the hole and then kind of like puts the, his hands on top of him and kind of shimmies his body through and keeps walking. And uh, <laughs> my, my friend's just kind of like that, you know what I mean? And I'm like, I don't know. So I, I, uh, I get out of the car and he like basically tells me to get off the car. So I get off the car and, and I had remembered a story that my grandmother had told me. So I'm like, oh, I need to catch this thing. But at that point, it had already like gone into the neighbor's yard, and I could hear it scurrying away in the leaves. So I told my grandmother about it the next morning. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, remember I told you your your aunt caught one once. And I'm like, yeah, that's, I mean, I remember. <laughs> She's like, yeah, your aunt caught one once, and she kept it in a jar. And then uh, one day it just disappeared. Like she came to feed it or look at it or something. It just wasn't there anymore. And... Uh, <laughs> that's just kind of weird so then years later I'm telling this story to one of my cousins and she's like well yeah I remember a couple times when you were little she's she's maybe like gosh like three years older than me so she says that I was like maybe five or something and she was a like seven or eight and she, she had come over to play with my new toys and that I was upset she's like yeah I remember it clearly because you were so upset and I wanted to play with your toys but you wouldn't let me because the little people had taken one of them. 
yeah so that that's my little person's story and like that we're talking about something about gosh that's maybe five inches tall so that's my story guys thanks michael these little people of the forest the fae the fairies the sprites whatever you want to call them they've been popping up an awful lot for me lately well discussion of them at least I've yet to experience a visit from one myself. In fact, I'm a far cry from a quote-unquote expert on the subject. But what I can tell you is that they are seen all over, primarily here in California, and some have suggested that they may be responsible for the many national park disappearances reported over the past few decades, and still others claim that they'll give you safe passage in exchange for food or gifts and like several other such mysteries here in the United States. There's a plethora of different tribes and bands of Native Americans that share similar stories. I've personally heard legends from the Cherokee, Crow, Creek, and Apache tribes. The stories are too long to share here, but I've linked to an example of each of those people's stories in the show notes. Now, I'm still collecting information on these sightings, Michael. Perhaps one of these days we just might uncover the truth. Until then, thanks for sharing your experience. Now I have several more stories to fire off here this evening, so I'll speed through this really quickly. Do me a big solid and go to Monsters Among Us Podcast forward slash shop and pick up some merchandise. When you do so, you help support and represent the show. And of course, spread the word. And I don't have to say how much I appreciate it, but I just did. Okay then, let's venture to Vermont, where Amanda has a spooky one waiting for us. Hi Derek, my name is Amanda. I am a new listener to your podcast. Um, I was actually looking for some Dave Politis Missing 411 podcast, and I found yours, and I got really sucked into it. I started a couple weeks back and I'm, I went back to season one, episode one, and I heard your um, Lake Champlain champ podcast episode. And that really uh, floored me because I am a native Vermonter. I live in a town called Milton and it borders Lake Champlain. So we're there all the time. I haven't seen champ, but I still hope to someday. Anyway, this is uh, more of a ghost story, I guess. I lived in Milton my entire life. I was a police dispatcher for a long time and I um, was working in a town called Colchester which neighbors Milton and I thought I wanted to be a police officer so I was kind of following that direction and one of my co-workers was actually the chief of Milton Rescue and he kind of suckered me into joining he thought it'd be good for my resume blah 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 and I was like all right fine so I, I joined and I actually loved it and I spent just under 14 years as an EMT volunteering it's incredible and I suggest anybody do it But anyway, so it was about 2005, I was 20 years old, and I had just finished my EMT course, and I was staying at the station. A lot of agencies in Vermont are volunteer, so they're just local folks in your community who cover these calls, not so much the full paid, full staff, you know, so a lot of people respond to the um, station from their homes, and when you're new, you kind of stay at the station, and so I was staying at the station, it was my first night alone there. My crew had all left and gone home, and I was there by myself, and I kind of thought it was pretty cool because, you know, you have some other responsibilities being the first one on 
at the station. So I was excited. You know, I was kind of uh, shutting down the station, locking all the doors, turning off the lights and stuff, getting ready for bed. And so there's like two ambulance bays and a main floor where we do our training and we have our table and kitchen and stuff. And, and upstairs is more like storage and sleeping quarters. There's a couple of recliners and really old futons, really lumpy old futons. And they're covered in this blue corduroy kind of material. And they probably were never washed. But so anyway, I was getting ready for bed. I you know turned off the lights. I was watching TV on this old Zenith from the 90s TV. And I don't remember what I was watching, but I finally got tired enough and I was excited. I thought maybe a call would come, but I was too excited to sleep. So I was trying to watch TV to fall asleep. And when I turned the TV off, I saw this orange. The only way I can explain it is like, like a connect the dots. It's like an orange glowing, luminescent kind of like figure near the TV. And it was just in the shape of these little dots. And I was like, at first I'm like, oh my God, it's, it's a freaking ghost. But then I'm like, no, no, no. It's an old TV. It's static electricity. It's, it's not a ghost. Like you lose it. Like, go to bed and it was still there so I like rub my eyes and close my eyes but I could still see it and so I'm on this futon laying down and I hear there's no other sound like the windows are closed there's no fan there's no noise and I hear this scratch from underneath me like kind of like that and it, it, I, I envision like a demon coming up from hell like with a long fingernail just scratching underneath the futon and I'm like panicking and I'm like trying to breathe and I'm like no it's a mouse it's a mouse but I couldn't help but think like, oh my God. So I finally started getting my breathing down. Once I finally get my breathing down, I'm like, okay, it's just a mouse trying to get on the bed. Like it wasn't a demon. It was like, it's, it's a mouse. So I hear it a second time, this scratch. Okay. Kind of like that from underneath me. And honestly, uh, Derek, I don't know what happened. When I opened my eyes, it was daylight. So I must have either passed out from total fear, but I can't really explain it. As soon as my eyes open and I thought it was sunny. I went flying down the stairs and I left and I had not spent another night there alone. One other person told me about their experience. She was upstairs at the station and trying to take a nap or rest um, after a call. And it was daylight and she was the only one upstairs and she heard kind of heavy footsteps behind her and she thought somebody had come up together. And when she opened her eyes, there was absolutely nobody there. And so she came downstairs and she was all freaked out and asking if we were just up there and of course nobody else was downstairs and so you know, we kind of chalked it up to oh maybe maybe it was a ghost but maybe it was just for hearing things so can't confirm that it's a haunted rescue station we did transport a lot of people who were dead or dying so maybe somebody hung around maybe not maybe it was just static from the tv and a mouse trying to climb up in bed with me but i've never had anything like that happen since um, so yeah, thank you so much. I love your show, and I hope to call back again with uh, something from my husband. He had a situation happen at work one night, so hope to call back again. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Amanda. I probably should have added this to last week's medical worker special. Sorry about that. But like nearly every call from last week's show, this one is super creepy as well. Because you know you're in a creepy setting. Where, like Amanda said, there are dead and dying people moved through the building. Haunted or not, anyone sleeping alone there at night is prone to those types of anxieties. And yet another example of certain energies sticking around in these traumatic medical experiences. Whatever it is, we thank you Amanda for sharing it with us.
Tonight's show is brought to you by SaneBox. As you may imagine, I get a lot of emails. The fact is, we all do. Inbox Zero is a thing of the past. We're all so overwhelmed with emails, it's no longer about responding to everything. It's about responding only to the important things, the messages that just can't wait. And that's where SaneBox comes in. Think of it as an EMT for your email. As messages flow in, SaneBox does the triage for you, sifting only the important emails for your inbox and directing all the other distracting stuff to your Sane Later folder. So you know what messages to pay attention to now and what stuff you can get to later on. It also has useful features like the Sane Black Hole, where you can drag messages from annoying senders you never want to hear from again insane reminders to ping you if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date. And best of all, you can use SaneBox with any email client or phone, anywhere you check your email. So join me in saying goodbye to your messy inbox. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions and make you never miss an important email again. Do so with a free two-week trial plus a $25 credit exclusively for Monsters Among Us listeners. Visit SaneBox.com forward slash monsters today to start your free trial and get your $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash monsters. And as always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. So thank you for listening. Now back to the spooky stuff. Now have you ever seen anything in the sky that you couldn't quite identify? Well, so has Carlo from California. And this is his story. Hey, how's it going, Derek? My name's Carlo. I'm originally from uh, Alameda County, California, uh, which is where this event took place. So a little bit of a background. This was around 2016 to 2017. Me and my friends were fresh out of high school and the semester before going to our community college slash jobs or whatever. So we were just, you know, hanging out every night and uh, one of the things we would do often was go to the skate park. And this was in, uh, in Union City specifically, in Alameda County, at the Union City Skate Park. And we would go there four nights a week on average probably and just, you know, skate around for an hour or so until uh, somebody said, hey, let's go uh, smoke some pot or whatever. So, you know, we were there all the time, which is what makes what I'm about to tell you even weirder, which was basically... You know, you'd be skating around, you get winded, and uh, no one's in the skate park at nighttime, so I like to just pick a nice flat piece of ground and just lay on the cool concrete, catch my breath. And one time I was doing this, I, I was always staring up at the skite. And uh, this particular time, it was summer, so it was pretty clear skies, not a lot of clouds. And uh, I was able to see the stars pretty decently for such an urban area. And there was several lights in the sky that were brighter, I don't know if they were brighter or larger or whatever, but for whatever reason, they kind of caught my attention more so than, I guess, the surrounding background lights. And uh, it appeared to start moving. And first I was like, you know, it could just be my eyes, it could be a satellite, it could even be a planet or whatever, some type of astral body I'm not aware of. So, uh, you know, I studied it and I brought it up to my friends and there was at least five of us there at any given time. And sure enough, these lights continued to move and, but not linearly and not at a constant speed so it would be sitting in one place zip, zip across east west north south whatever direction it would go in all directions actually and we'll we were like well uh 
something is like up there. I don't know if they know we know they're there, but there's definitely something that is not known to us. I don't know if it's of extraterrestrial origin or of Earth origin or something else, but it was definitely not moving like any uh, space debris or whatever that I'm aware of. And this was not an isolated incident and happened quite often actually like we'd go like i told you we'd go there almost every day of the week and almost every time we went we would see them occasionally i want to say one time there was as many as three at one time at different i guess portions of the sky they weren't all right next to each other um interacting like crossing flight paths or anything like that don't want to go too far aside but occasionally we would you know we started seeing patterns and paying hyper attention to the sky and we would see like basically triangulated uh lights and uh i don't know if that's related or not but yeah so that's pretty much the experience but this is where it gets kind of suspect in my opinion was i was contacted on i believe it was either this r san francisco or r east bay subreddit i'm a pretty like active lurker on reddit i don't post a lot myself but i'm always spending way too much time on there than i should and uh, somebody was posting like has anybody been seeing these light phenomena of lights that move in nonlinear patterns and i was like this is literally what i saw like to a t so i commented back i was like yes for a matter of fact i have and uh don't know what they are but i've seen them and this is where i am and they contacted me back saying like oh this is really interesting like can i have your coordinates or something like they were basically trying to like hone in on where this phenomena was going on and that's when i kind of decided that I didn't really want to uh, be involved further in that investigation. I'm by no means a skeptic. Like I try to think logically, but uh, my I'd say I have active imagination and I, and I can tend to make myself paranoid. So I decided it was probably in my best interest to not pursue any further like information about those lights. That was about where the end of the trail was for me in terms of being interested in those lights and we kind of stopped paying attention to them because we all were kind of felt uneasy honestly about like i don't know just them being aware of us knowing of them and not wanting us to i guess yeah that's pretty much it and thank you for uh, giving us all the platform to uh, give these stories i found the podcast six months ago and i've been binging it non-stop and i'm almost caught up so uh yeah thank you so much love monsters among us you're awesome and uh thank you and look forward to the next episode thanks Now, I haven't a clue what this collection of lights is, but I can tell you I probably have a dozen or two experiences just like it, submitted from all over the country. And I think that says something. And Carlo is not alone for wanting to distance himself from his sighting. That's a message I've heard many times prior from other experiencers. It seems things get a little too weird, just a little too fast. Despite how strange Carlo feels, he was still brave enough to call in, and for that, we thank you. Now, like the merch announcement, I'll do my best to make this one brief as well. Hey, Patreon folks, I'll be dropping a brand new episode in the next week, week and a half, so be on the lookout. Now, if you're not on Patreon, drop what you're doing right now. Go to patreon.com forward slash monsters among us podcast and sign up for four measly bucks. I get my cut, which is a couple bucks, and you get 50 bonus episodes and a lot more bonus content. Okay, that wasn't brief at all, but I feel better knowing it's out of the way. <laughs>
because we're going to need a clear mind to process this final slate of calls. And kicking us off is a quick doppelganger story. Please join me in welcoming Vince from Illinois to the program. Hey, Derek, this is Vince from Illinois. Just listened to episode 17 in season 8, or I am listening to it, and then just came across Miguel's story talking about doppelgangers. Well, as I said, my name is Vince, but on my original birth certificate, I am Vicente. Throughout the years since, actually since about like 2000, I would say 2008, 2009, I have had multiple people come up to me throughout the years, um, I'd say about six or seven different times, saying, you know, oh, I saw you here, I saw you there. A couple of them were like friends, or I've become friends with them. Uh, we met in social situations and, you know, the friendship evolved from that. But other times, like it'd been strangers. Some of them were like, oh, you know, you helped me, you know, I, my car got stalled and you helped me push you off the side of the road or whatever, you know, get out of traffic. You know, a couple of them have been like super angry, like I did something horrible to them. And Miguel talks about how he named his doppelganger Vicente. Well, I, I thought that was strange and odd. And, you know, I'm like, no way. Like, there's there's no way. And then he said that he's like 6'3", and I'm like, no, that, that, that's definitely not it, because I am definitely not 6'3", so there's no way anybody would ever be able to confuse the two of us. But he also mentioned that he has a beard, and I, I usually wear a beard, so you know, I've got, there's something. Um, so maybe they're not seeing the height, but I just thought that was really odd, really strange, and just wanted to make that connection. So I'm going to keep listening, and I'm kind of scared that I'm already almost caught up with the seasons because I'm enjoying binging and it's going to kill me to have to wait for more content to be released. So I'm definitely going to hop on that Patreon subscription very soon here. Anyway, thanks. Like I said, you'll be getting a handful of stories via various recordings in an email probably within the next couple of days. Uh, I guess it doesn't really matter because I think you're still on your break right now. So, uh, yeah, uh, again, uh, as I mentioned before, love the podcast, love how it's going, uh, the round table was just previous, um, I, I think they're hilarious, um, so yeah, uh, I'll talk to you later, thanks. Thanks, Vince, for calling in. Well, the coincidences continue, because Miguel called back with another doppelganger experience. Hey Derek, this is Miguel Hera again. Hey, you're not gonna believe this, but I actually just yesterday or two days ago had another doppelganger story told to me. So like two days ago, I um, was in his elevator and this lady walks in. She was from like some Caribbean country. She has a really strong accent. And so I'm running up with this elevator with this lady, and the lady kind of side-eyes me, and I'm like, that's weird. And then, you know, she's like tapping her chin and whatever, and I'm like, okay, so what's what's happening? And all of a sudden, she turns around, and she's like, you know, thick Caribbean accent, do you have a twin? And I'm like, uh, no, why? And he's like, oh, maybe I maybe I saw you or whatever, right? And And I'm like, when was this? And she's like, like two weeks ago and I'm like where uh New York City and I'm like no there 
And so I'm like, okay, so I tell her like, okay, so you're like the sixth person to tell me this. What does this guy look like? And she's like, well, you know, he's he's about your height. Uh, looks just like you. And maybe he's a little bit thinner. Were you thinner before, like maybe a year ago or something? And I'm like, no, 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 I, I, this is my weight, you know? But you, I thought you said it was two weeks ago. No, it was two weeks ago. I, I saw him. He was like in his building and he was like a, some sort of manager or something. And she obviously knew the dude enough to, you know, when she saw me, she's like, do I have a twin? And I was like, no, I don't. So, you know, I tried to ask the lady, hey, do you have a picture of this guy? You know, do you know him a lot? It's like, oh, no, I only went there for a couple hours or whatever. But, I mean, she's like, but you're joking, right? You don't have a twin? I'm like, nope, don't have a twin. And But I did say, like, you know, but there is this guy apparently in Exist who I call Vicente, who uh, is my doppelganger, and you must have run into him. So, anyways, I just thought it was weird. You know, here's another person telling me about this damn guy that looks just like me. Uh, except he's thinner, apparently. So, anyways, I thought you got a kick out of it. And, uh, yeah, uh, hope you have a, a good time and uh, keep going on your podcast. All right, cool, thanks. You know, maybe there's a certain facial type out there that the human brain just really resonates with. I'd love to see and compare photos of each of these doppelganger submitters. How wild would it be if they all sort of looked alike? Anyhow, thanks, gentlemen, for sharing the entries. Now next up, we dip down under, where we meet up with Brody. Hi, Derek. Hi, Monsters Among Us listeners. My name's Brody. I'm from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, this story is actually my brother's and starts with him coming home late one night after work uh, and he's sitting in his living room watching TV when he hears the sound of a lady crying. Uh, he's got two housemates and one's a male, one's a female and he figures it's the his female housemate is upset about something so he decides he'll mind his own business about that uh, but the crying goes on for, I think he might have said an hour. It was a long time anyways. And um, he thinks, oh, I better go check on her. So he made his way up the hallway, um, got to his housemate's room and realised that's not where the crying's coming from and follows the sound to the spare bedroom where he's standing outside the door and he's sure now that the crying is coming from just beyond this door. So he knocks, gets no response, just hears the crying um, continue and eventually he decides he's going to open the door. And when he opens the door, the crying stops immediately, the house falls dead silent and there is no one in this room. There's nothing in there. Um, I hope you've got an explanation for this one because I can only put it down to an auditory hallucination because I've tried to get it out of him could it have been anything else but he's adamant that the sound was coming from just beyond the door so is it a funny coincidence was the neighbor perhaps crying and just when he opened the door it just happened to stop at the same time or is it something more sinister like a la llorona or a weeping woman type ghost anyway love to get your take on it thanks derek love the podcast thanks mate 
I think that's how they do it down there. Either way, we appreciate the long-distance submission. You know, auditory hallucination might not be a bad guess here, but my first thought here was something more organic. Was it some sort of animal? I know here in the States, we have all sorts of animals that make horrendous sounds. Some, nigh many, can sound like a crying woman or a woman in distress. So down in Australia, maybe a possum. Those cute little buggers look like they could let out a screech that'll make you faint. So Brody, maybe that's where you start. Have him listen to a call of a few local animals. And if that doesn't work, you know my go-to. Research the property. Thanks again, Brody, for sharing the story. Oh, and I can also hear those possum fans out there wanting to hear what they sound like. So this is the defense call of an Australian possum. I'll keep the volume low on this because, as it turns out, I was right. This thing sounds nasty. angry. I can tell these things. And although it sounds like a nightmare, it doesn't exactly sound like a crying woman, does it? So that might be one critter off the list there, Brody. Oh, and by the way, that sound was courtesy of Mr. Possum on YouTube. To close this thing out, we end where we began. The Pacific Northwest. Washington this time. And speaking of eerie sounds in the night, Nathan has a tale for us. Hey Derek, I'm Nate from Washington State. I love the show, so I thought I'd send in a couple stories for you to share on the podcast. My first story takes place back when I was in middle school, maybe 2004, 2005. It was summertime, so I had an ample time to watch TV or play with friends. And during that summer, I had watched a Bigfoot documentary that really interested me. I can't remember which documentary it was, though. Anyways, after watching it, I had brought the subject of Bigfoot up to my mom and stepdad. My stepdad had told me that he had an experience with Bigfoot up in northeast Washington in the Colville area, specifically the Spruce Canyon area. He had worked up there years ago, and one weekend he was fishing on a secluded lake, and it started getting dark, and all of a sudden ape-like womanish screams started happening all around him, and then rocks started to be thrown at him. Needless to say, he was spooked. He took his boat back to the dock, left his boat and all his fishing gear, and drove off. And he went and picked it up a couple days later. So being the middle school-aged boy that I was, I wanted to go up there too and check it out. He's like, sure, I'll take you up there uh, for a camping trip. So I brought my buddy from school, my stepsister, my dad's friend, and actually three of my nephews. We drive up there, we set up camp, uh, we fish and play, and on the second night around 10 p.m., We were sitting by the fire, and all of a sudden, that ape-like, woman-sounding scream started all around our camp. Uh, It went on for about 30 seconds, then it transitioned into wood knocks, one after another. One wood knock, and then another wood, uh, wood knock would happen, and then another wood knock would happen. And that happened for about 30 seconds or so, um, and then it ended. Nothing else happened during that trip, uh, but it was pretty crazy. A couple explanations that people have given me as to what I heard. Um, One was coyotes elk bugling or a cougar screaming none of those could account for this the wood knocks that i heard right after um and i know what coyotes and elk bugling and cougar screaming sounds like and it didn't sound anything like that it was apish in the way it sounded and could it be somebody uh playing a trick 
or a prank on us. I mean, possibly, but the place we were at was incredibly secluded. I mean, there's no running water. There's no electricity. You have to take a small winding DNR road, you know, for about five miles, even to get up there. It takes a long time. There's no showers. There's nothing like that. And at 10 o'clock PM, it just didn't make any sense for somebody to be playing a prank on us up there. Um, obviously I can't rule it out a hundred percent, but, um, it seems like a big waste of time <laughs> for somebody to do that. But anyway, that's my story. Uh, thanks for the podcast. Bye. Thanks, Nathan. That camping trip sounds pretty amazing, even with the spooky experience. I haven't camped in some time, and I'm suffering from campfire withdrawals. But anyway, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to know what was heard that night. But I am willing to help you decide. And although we don't have audio from Nathan's experience to analyze, we do have the next best thing. Just last month, a Bluefield, West Virginia woman recorded these eerie howls. Howls that have been echoing from the holler behind her house for months. Now, as usual, I'll play the original and then a cleaned up version. Regardless of what that is, that sort of sound will make your bones quiver if you hear it off in the distance. And I should add that the woman that captured the footage also claimed to find trees and shrubbery in weird formations. Formations she and researchers seem to believe to be stick structures of some sort, a commonly reported sign of these supposed creatures. Well, I can't help but wonder if both Nathan and this unidentified witness heard the exact same thing. Bigfoot hunters. Now if you think about it, it makes good sense. What is it a majority of these squatchers do? They go out into secluded, forgotten parts of the forest. They pound on some trees and howl into the night, eagerly awaiting a response. So is it that far-fetched to propose that that could be the origin of each set of sounds. But I hear some of you out there, hip to Bigfootery. You're out there grumbling. You're saying, sure, that checks out for Washington State, but how many people are looking for Bigfoot in West Virginia? And to that I say, valid point. But also to that, I have an answer. A sighting from a man named Billy Humphrey back in 2019 just might be the catalyst that got this whole thing going. On October 21st, 2019, local coal miner Billy Humphrey says he and his wife saw Bigfoot lurking in the woods near their home in Denise. When he got completely out of sight, he let out a call like a hoot, almost like a Humphrey also discovered extremely large footprints. This measures 16 and a half by 10 inches wide, which would show when we explain the size of this thing, this right here is proof of how big he was. Along with large footprints, 
Humphrey says the size of the figure he saw was something that he has never seen before. So as he turns to walk off, his hand, this arm, was so long that it was close. I mean, it had to be around his knee area, as he, even as he slumped. And his, his forearms, his arms, his chest, I mean, this thing was just absolutely massive. Humphrey says that before the incident, he had ridiculed such claims, but now is a believer. All I can tell any viewer listening to this, that they're 100% real. Nobody can tell me that I did not see something walk off, that my wife did not see something walk off. I mean, that's that's all I got to say. This, he's real. He's 100% real. And he's in West Virginia. Now that clip is property of WOAY, ABC News 4 out of Baxley and Bluefield. That's right the same West Virginia town in which the howls were recorded. It turns out the two, the sighting and the recording location, are about an hour and 20 minutes drive from one another. Now I've linked to this clip in the show notes, and there's even a photo snapped of this mysterious creature. But between you and me, the evidence provided, the photo and the footprint cast, they leave a lot to be desired. But I will say Billy sounds sincere in telling the tale. And there have been more than a few reports of an upright, hairy, hominid roaming the hills and hollers of West Virginia, just as they have out in Washington State. So thanks once again, Nathan, for calling in. And that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. Keep the party rolling by following us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, the terrifying music you hear throughout this production has been provided by Co.ag Music and Carl Casey at Whitebot Audio. Thank you so much for listening, and until next week. Well, wouldn't you know, I even learned something from tonight's secret story. Jack, the mic is yours. Hey, this is Jack, driving a truck, traveling all over the U.S. Had a little piece of interesting information for you about Season 4, Episode 18, where you were talking about gremlins. Now, an interesting piece of information about people's belief in gremlins, it's not limited to aircraft. Gremlins are a very, very high-valued belief in the motorcycle community. As a matter of fact, with motorcycles, people will traditionally have what's called a gremlin bell. Now, a gremlin bell is hung on the lower rear part of your motorcycle, in order to give a small rattle that attracts the gremlins and leads them away from 
your motor and transfer case because it kind of simulates the sound of a loose bolt. But a very interesting piece about that is the bell will not work if you purchase your own bell. It has to be gifted to you by someone. So a little bit of legend folklore about uh, gremlins in the motorcycle community. I love the show. Keep it up. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jack. In my past life, I had a nasty commute down in Los Angeles. From mid-city near Koreatown to the heart of Beverly Hills, five days a week. That commute was brutal enough that I scraped a few hundred bucks together and bought an old 150cc scooter just to see if it improved things. Well, I bought and rebuilt a little Honda motorcycle a year or two later. So yeah, it cut the commute down. From an hour to 10 to 15 minutes, depending on how brave I was feeling that day. And that continued until the day I moved up here, up to the mountains, where I'm terrified to take it on the roads. And in all that time, I'd never heard the story of motorcycle gremlins. Although I can confirm they probably do exist. I've been a victim of theirs many, many times. So you know me. I had to find more information. And in my search for more knowledge, I uncovered a possible origin story for these tiny trinkets. Courtesy of YouTuber, Road Rash Renegade. There was a biker... And it was during Christmas time, and he was on his way down to Mexico to get a bunch of toys to bring back for children. And he was riding back. He wasn't having any problems. And then before he hit the border of the U.S., 40 miles, actually, 40 miles before he hit the U.S. border, he came around a corner, not suspecting anything, and there was a bunch of uh, gremlins. You know, gremlins, like the little short guys that hang out under bridges. And they ran in the road, and they caused him to crash. And when he crashed, you know, his bike was messed up and he was laying there on the ground hurt and he couldn't do anything and all these gremlins were surrounding him. And he was keeping him back by throwing all the toys from his, from his bag, from his saddlebag. Because his saddlebag had, it had blown off and it was laying there next to, to him while he was hurt. And uh, he threw all the toys and the gremlins were about to get him and he got desperate. And all he had left was a bell. A Christmas bell, I guess. And he started jingling it, hoping that it would scare him off. And there was two motorcyclists camping somewhere close by, you know, within a half mile or so. And they heard this bell, and they were like, what's that bell? There shouldn't be anything out here. It's the middle of nowhere. And they went to investigate it. And they came upon this motorcyclist being attacked by these gremlins, and they saved him. They saved his life. And he wanted to, you know, he was saved. He wanted to pay them back. But he didn't have anything. He didn't have no money because he spent it all on toys. And he didn't have any toys because he threw them at the gremlins. And, I mean, the bikers, they didn't really want to pay him anyway because we're bikers. We help each other out. So all he had was these just a few bells. So he cut a little bit of leather off of his jacket. And he tied each of the bells to their motorcycles, one on one and one on the other. And he said, hey, if you're ever in trouble, just do like me, ring the bell, and surely a biker will hear it and he'll come save you too. And that's how he paid him back. That's the only way he knew to pay him back. Now Road Rash Renegade goes on to say that the bell should hang as low as possible on the bike for what that's worth. So there you go. 
and if you have a biker friend or loved one, it looks like you might have some shopping to do. Thanks again, Jack. I love learning new things. And thank you to everyone else for sticking around. Oh, and real quick, I'm honored to be nominated for Best Paranormal Podcast for this year's Paranormal Podcast Awards presented by Paranormality Radio, but I need your help to win. If you enjoy Monsters Among Us, please take a moment to head over to ParanormalityRadio.com. Click on the black rectangle that says Paranormal Podcast Awards Voting and cast your vote for MAU under Best Paranormal Podcast. Voting ends September 30th, and I appreciate your support so much. And on that note, thanks again for sticking around. Have a good night. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.